Have you heard about the Brooklyn Enigma, a young injured Victorian girl who fasted for over a decade and become a psychic phenomenon? From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. A little history. Her name was Molly Fancher. She was dubbed the Brooklyn Enigma and was one of the most famous and debated female oracles of the Victorian era. Let's turn the pages back to get a little bit better understanding of this unusual case. Young Mary Fancher was born in 1848. She was the eldest of five children, born in uh, Attleboro, Massachusetts. As a young child, uh, she had had to come to deal with her own mother's death, uh, a very unexpected death. Shortly after the mother's death, the family moved to Brooklyn, New York, and her family established himself as a prominent merchant there. Young Molly found her life even further disrupted by her father's remarriage and the deaths of two of her younger siblings. Although her unmarried aunt moved into Brooklyn uh, there at the house to help establish herself as a surrogate mother for the surviving children, Molly's life would never be the same. She was fairly popular due to her good looks and pleasant manner, and everything seemed to change when Molly's own health began to fail at the young age of 16. Now, there was a tragic accident that occurred. Uh, Bill? Yeah, apparently she got her skirt cut on a streetcar, and she was drugged for nearly a block. Ouch. Um, suffered uh, head and spinal injuries, was laid up in bed, paralyzed, and slipped in and out of trance states while she was well, in bedridden. Yeah, multiple like comas and stuff. Um, so basically that accident confined her to bed uh, where she basically spent the majority of most of her life, but she would go on to live another 50 years after that accident. And I found one book that I'm going to credit. I want to make sure I give credit for it. Um, the Fasting Girl, A True Victorian Medical Mystery. Um, the author's name is Michelle Stacy. And a lot of my reference notes I, I kind of drew from that, so I definitely wanted to give credit for that. While her medical condition in this accident was considered a family matter at first, everything changed with a rather lengthy article that was published in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle newspaper that was on June 7, 1866. It took place about one year after this accident, and it described Molly as a remarkable case. Uh, the article also reported that she had gone for seven weeks without food, and as a result of this, had gained remarkable psychic powers. Now, I'd like to real quick, real quick, talk about the rules of survival here, real quick. The survival rule of three. Now, when you're in a survival situation, the rule is generally that you can survive for three minutes without air. Uh, you can survive for three hours without shelter, assuming you had a supply of air. You can survive for three days without water assuming that you had the above. And then you can survive for three weeks without food, assuming all of the above. Three weeks. This was so seven. sort of the, the unofficial survival rule of threes. This is, you know, if you get past that three mark, three weeks without food, 
you know, that's yeah. starvation territory. Yeah. Well, obviously, you can see when this newspaper article came out and said she had went seven weeks uh, with fasting uh, and gained remarkable psychic powers and a twist of fate after that, that kind of made her an overnight sensation. And it doesn't seem like not eating would grant um, superpowers. Maybe a little out of mind. Uh, <laughs> you might think you maybe. had powers. Yeah, yeah. But, but over the first six months, Molly's condition deteriorated very quickly after the accident. She ate and drank almost nothing and began, began to suffer from partial paralysis, impaired eyesight. Now here in, in my notes, it says before she, the, what kind of prompted the, the going without eating was that she started to suffer from what they called dyspepsia at the time, which we call indigestion now. But that was sort of the impetus for, for the, the, the not eating. Not eating because of indigestion. But what was the word you used? Uh, they called it dyspepsia that at the time. so much cooler. Was the diagnosis. Yeah, no, like I, <laughs> I suffer from indigestion from time to time. It'd be a lot cooler. I have dyspepsia. I have dyspepsia. But she got to basically where she was losing her, her eyesight, spinal pain, hemorrhaging lungs. She was coughing up blood. Uh, she was confined to her home. Uh, of course, bedfast, as we said, that was by the winter of 1866. And she remained there for another 50 years until her death. In the uh, book that I had mentioned by uh, Michelle Stacy, she really dives into more of the understanding of, of Molly Fancher, uh, the historical puzzle of what happened to this unfortunate young woman. Uh, and at that time, uh, invalidism uh, basically was something that kind of has plagued uh, the 19th century. And that's kind of where this part of the story gets a little stranger. And Bill, I think you had done some research on what was known as the Fasting Girls, kind of popular at that time. Uh, the Fasting Girls was a was a curiosity of the Victorian era. Uh, phenomenon was most most common during the turn of the 20th century. Uh, it was referred to as anorexia mirabilis, or the miraculous lap lack, the miraculous lack of appetite. Uh, the reason it became such a thing uh, was religious iconography. Uh, it was seen in saints, Angela of Foligno. And Catherine of Siena were known saints that had supposedly gone for extended periods without food, which was regarded as a miracle. So I've got a list of other fasting girls, uh, and we can talk about their, their stories a little bit later. But apparently that was sort of a common thing. And again, I've got uh, probably six other girls, and, and it ranges in time from you know the early 1800s all the way up to one that was in the 1920s. So Okay, okay. Well, one of the things I wanted to touch on that is during this Victorian era, you know, it, it was a different time. It was a different world. And I think a lot of this myself was plagued by young women who was becoming educated, uh, who was actually attending college. They were reading books. And again, it was a different world. So bear with me. But at that time frame, a lot of the society was ran by men, yeah, uh, very dominant men, and they did not like the, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, the women folk speaking up and possibly embarrassing them. And so a lot of times they would call in their friends, other men, who were doctors and like confine the wives and daughters to their beds and bedrooms and stuff. Well, sort of an, another take on it that I saw when I was doing my, my reading. Uh, a lot of these start with a major significant injury. That, that puts these women in a bedridden situation where they have to be taken care of. And not to be little or, or anything, but, but it, it seems like maybe in some of these situations they preferred that lifestyle, you know, that being taken care of, being bedridden. Gotcha. And again, you're talking about the Victorian area where women ran the household a lot of, a lot of time. Right. 
So it may have been uh, one of the stories particularly, I think, even references the fact that, you know, being bedridden and taken care of was preferable to her day-to-day work on the farm and, and household chores and cooking and cleaning and things like that. That's a different twist, but a good way to think about it. Now, Fanshire's case, I think, was indeed more than, than all of that. For, for one, uh, she was engaged at the time of the uh, stagecoach accident, uh, although she never did get married. Um, she was cared for almost exclusively by this aunt who had moved to Brooklyn to help take care of the family, basically, who became a surrogate mother. And uh, she stayed by her side until her own death when, when the aunt passed away. But uh, Molly began to exhibit unusual symptoms. She fell into these trances and had violent, uh, violent spasms. Some believe she had been possessed by the devil or the demon even. Um, and as you, as we had talked about, she'd started to refuse to eat and drink. One of the accounts, uh, literally said, I'm sorry, this is, this is far-fetched, but it says over the next 16 years, observers claim not a single morsel of food or a drop of liquid reached her stomach. Yeah. Uh, now I thought it was interesting. It said reached her stomach. So maybe that does imply she was trying to eat. It just maybe came up or, or whatever. But according to one account, uh, her stomach had literally collapsed so that by placing the hand in the cavity of her spinal column, it could be felt. So yeah, like, it was I, like I deteriorating. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, as you kind of touched about fasting, fasting is an old practice. Uh, but to go on for 16 years, come on, you, you know, you had said the rule of three yeah. earlier. Uh, that's indeed a bit hard to believe. Most likely was only partially true. Well, I don't know about you, but... uh. I don't, I, 16 hours would be too much. <laughs> yeah, you got that right. Be like, give me another burger or pizza. Uh, but again, the newspapers at the time, they, they, they elaborated this. Um, you know, they had come out with the earlier article and, and it got a lot of attention. And so I think this was probably just a, a newspaper ploy to, to get front page story headline news kind of thing. Well, and I think with, with Molly Fancher, the story is a little different. I don't think they ever proved her to be fraudulent in any way. A lot of the other fasting girl stories, they do eventually prove to be hoaxes one way or another. Right. As a matter of fact, again, we'll, we'll talk about it later, but one of my favorite newspaper headline titles of all time is going to come up in this particular podcast. Um, but they usually are able to prove that it was a hoax in some capacity. So, But with her, I don't think they ever completely i mean they were never ever ever able to completely debunk her her story i agree and i think that's kind of what makes her stand aside from these others uh now molly now is in her 20s uh, in the 1870s she'd become somewhat of a we'll call it a psychic medium celebrity of her time while her eyesight had apparently failed uh, she was able to see and describe detailed objects brought into her room uh, comment on events that had occurred well beyond the normal range of vision she could read letters in sealed envelopes. I believe uh, she would be able to predict when there'd be a knock at the door or when thunderstorms were going to happen one, was part of it. One particular story was she told her aunt, again, who was by her bedside, she says, you need to go answer the door. And the aunt says, no one's at the door yet. And she goes, well, there will be. Within a few moments, there was, you know, the yeah. you know knock on the door. And it was an uncle that they had not saw in years. And not only did she say oh, it's uncle so-and-so, and I don't remember his name, but he is in dire need of help. Well, he had been injured and had sought them out while he was passing through Brooklyn. Huh. Before She knew this before he ever yeah. actually knocked on the door. And sure enough, you know, the aunt goes downstairs, greets the uncle, and sure enough, he was he was needing help. So 
some psychic ability <laughs> definitely going on there. But, you know, she could do all of this. She kept her eyes often bandaged as her eyesight was failing to different degrees. But that was kind of a, some might call it a parlor trick. I think that was done quite often in Victorian era where someone would hand you a sealed envelope and, you know, she would read what was inside before ever opening it and then they would open it up and, and prove it. But she took it a step further. When she went in and out of these comas, if you will, uh, trances, she would awaken and she would tell her aunt that she had communed with the dead. She had walked with the dead, spoke with the dead, in particular visited her mother uh, in heaven. She was a very religious girl. She did not want to be considered part of that new age movement and all that. She, <laughs> she declared, uh, you know, she was a Christian girl and, you know, all of that. And so there was a lot of references yeah. to heaven. No, no witchcraft for No her. witchcraft, no, 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 hoodoo, voodoo stuff. But uh, she awoken one time after one of these comas and asked her aunt to bring her some needleworking yeah, uh, material. I was going to ask about this. And the aunt's like, you don't know how to do that. <laughs> and she goes, I do now. And because of the contortions of her body, I think she kind of had one arm, her left arm, that was, for whatever reason, kind of up behind her head. And so this girl awoke out of a coma, got embroidering, and would embroidery blindfolded up by the side of her head, totally out of what she could have possibly even seen through bandages, and just started making this beautiful, elaborate needlework. Uh, did like curtains and, and doilies and blankets and, and all kinds of stuff. I think when we first talked about this, I was telling you there's a series of books called Necroscope about a, a, a gentleman that has the ability to speak with the dead, and, and he uses it in a very similar manner. He can pick up skills and talents from those that have passed on. So that 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 immediately reminded me of those books when you mentioned the embroidery yeah. after after being in one of these trances. I, I mean, I'm assuming that's where she picks up the skill. I, I don't think that she just learned it spontaneously. No, 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 I think that was kind of what it was allured to that someone on the other side had taught her how to do this. And another thing that she was known to do is she crafted very fragile, lifelike wax flowers. Uh, again, that's kind of a novelty. Sounds now, interesting. An, an interesting twist because she had gained so much, you know, celebrity. Uh, people would come to her home. Uh, they would ask for visions and readings. And sometimes she would do them. Sometimes she wouldn't. She was not one to accept money. Uh, so when they would offer to pay her often, she says, I, I don't want your money. That's not what it's about. But she would sell these wax flowers and stuff that she would make, and that kind of helped support her, if you will. Well, I mean, I guess she was working in a way. I mean, she was yeah. doing something. Handicapped and, and working, you know, definitely with what she could. Uh, but some of these embroideries and stuff, I guess, was just mesmerizing, marveling to the public who flocked to her bedside. Uh, to go view this medical mystery. Now, some of these, I'm told, uh, up in New York, there's actually some of her needlework embroidery that's still on at a museum display and stuff where you can go and huh. see it. Uh, I haven't been up to New York in many years, but <laughs> I, I seriously, I would like to go see some of it. I think it's pretty I, cool. That's what I was, I would like to see what those look like. But she claimed that these were gifts received from the dead ones that she gained during her deep trances and later these comas. Um, again, like I said, she stated that she walked and talked with the spirits around her and, and often went and visited her mother for guidance because she missed her so much and lost her as a young child. Now, some of the alleged powers that uh, Mary had is she, as we talked, she could predict like when the front doorbell would ring uh, before anybody got there. And not only that it would ring, but who it would be and what their business uh, would be. 
Uh, she could run her hands over pages of a book or a newspaper with her eyes closed and bandaged and read the words out loud without air. Uh, she could also speak with the dead to gain answers for visitors on uh, where items had been hidden or lost uh, by deceased loved ones, uh, or possibly to gain answers to other questions. She could determine what a sealed letter was in an envelope or perhaps identify a playing card that, be, that would be put underneath her pillow that she would never be allowed to touch, hold, or, or see. Uh, and along with these bizarre medical symptoms, including these strange contortions that I had mentioned, especially of her arms and legs, she was, uh, you know, obviously had that uh, embroidery and elegant curtains and stuff. Now, she oh. was witness doing this, too. This wasn't something that, you know, the door would close and at night this, these would appear. Because some people said, well, the ant's doing this. And they, they would call people in, and she would almost go into a trance while she was embroidering these things. Now, she had lost like basically the use of all of her senses in the process of, of the injuries and, and the progression after that right sight smell uh taste yep uh it's, it says here touch now obviously she could manipulate things but she could hold stuff, she was feeling yeah. what she the so the only the only sense that she was still using would have been hearing at that point now one of the things uh I did not find with some of the other fasting girls that I did with her and, and maybe you found something to the otherwise but uh, she was one of the first recorded cases of what we would now call multiple uh, personality disorders. Um, she had a rosebud persona, uh, persona a, a pearl and a ruby that were very dominant, along with probably five or six others. And when she would be asked about it, it would like she would awaken out of a trance and she would be in the voice of Ruby. Or, you know, of Rosebud. Rosebud seemed to be the one closest related to Molly herself. Now, I, I will say in previous uh, readings for, for other topics, multiple personality disorder is one of the most difficult mental disorders to prove to the point where even today very few people believe that it's a real mental disorder. Okay. I think that, that even in cases, in, in most cases, it's, it's not, that, that's uh, faked. Thanks. Yeah, but uh, I think there's only been maybe one or two cases ever where they said, "Okay, this is definitely, you know, a mental disorder." Right. So, well, she would stress that she didn't realize she was doing this. However, she would stress that these were different spirits that had just, you know, came through to her. And again, uh, you know, with what research I've done and saw, you see that pretty typical of the the medium and the TV and movie shows. You know, Sounds someone's like going to speak through you. She's got a lot of interaction with the dead, and and so maybe yeah, like you said, not other personalities of hers, but other personalities of other people, know, people. spirits coming through her. Now, ironically, this was during what was known as the spiritualist movement uh, at the time. Uh, and Molly Fancher herself never cared for the spiritualist label. I had mentioned, you know, she was a very religious woman. She insisted on staying true to her Methodist roots and regarded herself as an earnest Christian in her own words, quote unquote. She also denied being a spirit medium and publicly feared being classed in any manner as a clairvoyant or second sightseer of the spiritualist movement. Uh, although there were any number of female mediums who offered psychic services to the public, uh, again, she refused always to be paid for this. She would do it only as a favor. Uh, kind of interesting. So I believe uh, uh, we can move on and maybe talk about some of the other fasting girls. Sure, go ahead. 
Now, again, this was sort of a, a thing of the Victorian era. And and like I said, I have cases that range from the 1800s all the way up into the 1900s. Kind of have them sorted here chronologically. So we'll just kind of touch base. And, and I just have a, a little bit of information on each one. And we can kind of maybe expand on that a little bit as we go. The first one I would talk about would be Anne Moore, known as the Fasting Woman of Tutbury. From 1807 to 1813, she claimed to have eaten nothing at all. She lived on her looks prior to that, became the mother of a large family, but in the 1800s she was reduced to poverty and became used to, to living on the bare minimum food that, that one would need to survive. So she was already, I mean, let's say fasting, you know, without saying that she wasn't eating food at all. She took permanently to her bed, um... Or she lost all desire for food in November of 1806 and took permanently to her bed six months later. She was eventually investigated and proven to be a fraud, and I don't know the terms of which that, that fell under. Mm. And then we would move on to Sarah Jacob, the Welsh fasting girl. This was in the 1860s. I'm probably going to butcher this, but she <laughs> came from the tiny village of Car Carmanthenshire. Wow, that's a name. Uh, she claimed not to eat anything after the age of 10. Uh, the local vicar became convinced that, that she was a miracle, uh, suffering from the anorexia mirabilis we talked about. In 1869, her parents agreed to have her tested, and under strict supervision by nurses from the guy, the well, we'll say Guy's Hospital, I, mean, I don't know what, what proper for that, she was denied food under all circumstances, even if she asked for it, to, oh. to see if she was going to survive. That's kind of brutal. Well, after two weeks, she started showing signs of starvation. <laughs> Go figure. Imagine that. Uh, the vicar told uh, the parents to send the nurses away. Uh, the parents refused, even when they were informed that she was dying of starvation. And she insisted that the lack of food had nothing to do with her symptoms, even though they were all indicative of starvation. <laughs> now, it really has sort of a sad ending. She did die of starvation two weeks later. Uh, she had been secretly consuming small amounts of food, but not enough that she could survive. And she could only do that when she wasn't under supervision. So she was sneaking food when there was no one there, right. but she was under almost constant surveillance. So she wasn't able to, to get enough food to survive. Her parents were convicted of manslaughter and, uh, sentenced to hard labor after her death. Oh, wow. Went after the parents. Yeah. Uh, now Lenora Eaton, I think, uh, no, this is the, the. The newspaper title comes next, and we're the next one I want to talk about. But Lenora Eaton was in New Jersey in 1881. She was a reputable citizen, uh, promoted her as being able to live without eating, and marked her as a special person and a symbol of faith in the miraculous. Uh, her claims were investigated. The doctors were sent to investigate her. Um, she refused to eat once they began the investigation and then died 45 days later. Wow. So again, another one where that absolute, like, I'm not going to eat, ended up costing her life. Now, here's the one that has my favorite newspaper article of all time. Josephine Marie Bedard, also known as the Tingwick Girl, uh, she kind of came to fame in an 1889 Boston Globe story entitled, and I love this title, by the <laughs> way, Who Took the Cold Potato? Dr. Mary Walker Says the Fasting Girl Bit a Donut. Oh my gosh, what the heck is that got to I do love, with anything? I love that title. <laughs> no, Dr. Walker investigated her her, her uh, claim to be a fasting girl, searched her clothing, and found a bit of a donut with a bite out of it when she first ah. met her. And then later on, the doctor had a meal, and she had three pieces of potato left on her plate. She got up to tend business somewhere else, came back, and one of the pieces was gone. Ah. So who bit the cold potato? The yeah. headline suddenly makes sense. Yeah. 
And then uh, when she walked into the room, Josephine was dabbing her mouth with a with a bit of handkerchief. So, I mean, she was hangry. Pretty 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 much <laughs> knew where it went. Two Boston companies were competing uh, competed in court. Took it to court to be able to exhibit quote unquote this girl. Uh, one was called Nickelodeon. Can't speak to any relation to Nickelodeon <laughs> or not. I don't know if it's related. And uh, the Stone and Shaw's Museum. They wanted to show her off like an exhibit. Wow. And like I said, went to court and, and tried to get this settled in court. And I think uh, they were going to charge the outrageous price of 50 cents a head to, look, to, to come and look at a woman not eat. Wow. Obviously, <laughs> I mean, this, this was a big thing at that time frame. Yeah. Uh, but again, like I said, that is probably one of the best <laughs> newspaper headlines I think I've ever seen. And then you have uh, Therese Newman, which would be the most recent. Uh, she took a tumble off of a stool in 1918, suffered a spinal injury, which uh, resulted in blindness, gastric problems, and paralysis. Mm. In 1926, a blood-colored serum began to, to ooze from her eyes, and she, she displayed signs of stigmata during Lent that year. Whoa. So she kind of took it up a degree. Religious uh, in, movement. In 1927, she claimed she had been visited by a saint who told her that food and water would no longer be necessary and she could exist only by t you know by taking the Holy Communion. That would be enough for her. Uh, she was observed for two weeks in July of 1927. They concluded that she never did take uh, attempt to take food, but she, lo she lost weight at the beginning of the period. They weighed her regularly. At the beginning of this period, she had lost weight. By the time they got to the end of those two weeks, she had gained five to six pounds. How in the world? So supposedly she was not eating. Now, a lot of them believed her to be a fraud, aided by her father. They think her dad had a part to play in this to kind of, to kind of, um, I mean, probably to make money, yeah, I would assume. Right. Uh, and she, she did die from cardiac arrest in 1962. So I would say probably the last surviving fasting girl hmm. that there is. I was just thinking modern day. And I say modern is still in the past, but in our lifetime, Gandhi, of course, you know, he went on a fasting movement and, yeah. and all of that. And obviously this one was tied to some religious beliefs and stuff as, as well as his. It's, it's interesting. And by fasting, obviously, as your body begins to shut down, you're going to have illusions and, and some of this stuff. So you maybe truly believe you are having these psychic powers or visions, walking with the dead. And, but I, that's some far-fetched stuff. It really is. Well, back to little Molly. We'll go back to her story a little bit. During the time frame of the 1870s to 1880s, it was her heyday. Uh, the newspaper articles, I think, had flourished, as we had talked about, talking about, you know, weeks, even a point of uh, nearly 16 years without eating. One six-month period alone said that her food intake was nothing more than four teaspoons of milk. So it wasn't that she was totally fasting, but, you know, she was just... Just an un unbelievable amount of food like there should have been that, that's not enough to get by no no now one of the things with a spiritual movement going on um with molly they came aboard and there was people who viciously fought for her saying she is not a fraud this is a legitimate case as much as there were the the, the new doctors neurology was kind of a new concept at that time and some of those were fighting against her and with the spiritualist movement, it was quite a frenzy uh, in newspaper media and everything. There was a Reverend Joseph, and I'm, I'm probably going to butcher this, Doraya. He was a prominent Presbyterian pastor in Brooklyn. Now, he was one of the first ones that, that stood up for her. Um, in an article, newspaper, he states, and I quote, her physical changes 
have in some manner released her mind from the imprisonment of the body, and she does what it and she does with it what other mortals cannot do with theirs. Drea, the reverend, uh, speculated that Fancher's mind or spirit was now governed by other and higher laws than those that normally controlled it with the bondage to her body. Uh, his mes message radiated uh, across deeply with the spiritualist movement. Now, obviously, he wasn't part of the spiritualist movement, but again, you had all these newspaper articles and stuff that was against pro-con, pro-con. Um, he definitely put his passion in that voicing, you know, credibility. Uh, and in return, uh, taking the lead to battle against her, uh, Molly Fancher was a fraud in the eyes of uh, many. And uh, in particular, there was a neurologist by the name of George M. Beard and a former Army Surgeon General William Alexander Hammond. Beard and Hammond charged that Fancher's fantastic claims could not be true but conceded that her deception was not necessarily willful. So they were kind of standing up for her without just totally bulldozing her over. She's, I don't, I, I guess there's a part of my brain that doesn't understand what that sentence is getting at. She's, she's not fraudulent, but not, I mean, was... I think what they were saying was because of the accident uh, and not eating properly, that kind of what we were saying that she believed what oh, okay. she was doing okay. was she, true in it her own mind yes. these things were happening it but, wasn't like hey what can i do to make money on the side because obviously like i said she didn't take money yeah so they were kind of i guess being a polite way of saying you're a fraud but maybe you're not intentionally yeah, you're being not doing it on fraud. purpose you just have you know these delusions now that changed later on as the years went by so that was kind of their first claim is you know maybe she's not intentionally doing it she may truly believe this and, and i've got to read this quote uh, out of uh, this uh dr hammonds he said uh, proclivity to simulation and deception is a description of fancier there's a lot of big words there. there's a lot of big words <laughs> If Fancier was not to be blamed for her fraudulent self-preservation, the truth of her condition must nonetheless be exposed in the interest to secure scientific explanation over the primitive forces of superstition. Now again, you have to consider neurology and a lot of the medical community, this was new. So you had the spiritualist as well as the religious aspect. Now you had the scientists coming in trying to scientifically explain everything and it was yeah. right there on the on the front the storm front if you will this battle of wits intelligence against superstition would go on for a decade uh, scores of various doctors psychiatrists spiritualists clergy ministers from all religions uh, some staked credibility for her some was against her uh, various votes fraud to full believers uh, doctors and ministers argued about whether Fancher actually had fasted for years on end. They were really, I think, arguing about whether the body should be understood as a complex machine or as God's most intricate handiwork. Those who discussed the veracity of her claims in speaking with the dead were actually concerned about whether the brain was a complex array of nerves and chemicals and electrical charges or the center core of a person's essential humanity. So there was a lot more going on a lot deeper, if you will by all of this. Yeah, they were they were looking at it in a way that, I mean, it really seems like they were raising questions that we still don't have good answers for now. Very well put. 
I mean, we still have that same argument going on today. You've, you've got the true believers, you've got the ones who are very close-minded, and then you've got the majority of people that are probably kind of hung somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I mean, I would argue, despite all evidence, especially with us doing this particular podcast, that I, I'm kind of more of a science bend. But even I'm willing to say that like, there's definitely parts of, of the human machine, if you will, that we don't understand, and, right. and you know, brains. And how the brain works and, and how the senses work. We know, you know, we talk about the common five senses, but in, you know, the years that, that science is researched, we know there's more than five senses. You know, you have your sense of direction and your sense of bodily awareness and things like that. Like we're aware of so much more than we're even aware that we're aware of, you know? <laughs> well, and then you have, I mean, part of the reason why I got into studying the supernatural and stuff was my own near-death experience where I was pronounced dead on the operating table. And you hear, you know, the many, the stereotypical is you'll see the bright light. Well, you'll have the ones that's believing that's the bright light welcoming you into the, the gates of heaven or Valhalla or whatever your beliefs may be. And then you have the scientific, well, that's your brain starving of oxygen. And there's the scientific reason yeah, of what. And all your, all your little neurons are firing. Yeah. And, so we're still having but, that debate today. I mean, absolutely. E even I would lay claim to saying I've had a couple of what I would call prophetic dreams. I mean, maybe. I certainly didn't, you know, see any major events, but just something like, you know, maybe I, one particular example is, you know, I had a dream one time that a, a friend of mine had come to me and said he had bought a, his parents had got him a new video game. Mm -hmm. And I mean, literally that week in school, that particular friend came to me in almost the exact same manner and said, hey, look at this new video game I got. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's definitely some questions there that we don't have answers to. Yeah, yeah. Well, Molly Francher's life seemed to kind of calm down by the late 1880s. Uh, the rise and fall of spiritualism, the impact of Charles Darwin's theories, collective psyche. Uh, these things seem to kind of overshadow the story of poor Molly Fancher herself. As public interest receded uh, during the 1880s, her most remarkable symptoms seemed to just kind of mysteriously fade away. She experienced fewer trances. Her eyesight returned. Uh, she also no longer claimed to be able to communicate with the dead. Uh, at some point in the early 1890s, she began eating openly, and even photographs from that period period show a strikingly plump lady. I believe some of the pictures I saw must have been from that time frame. <laughs> yeah, reclining like in a normal chair, not in her bed, you know, in, in her chair, relaxing at her home. Um, while she might have lost some of her allure, uh, she still attracted several hundred people to a 1916 reception that she held uh, it was the 50th anniversary of the accident. And that would have it been was pretty, pretty close to her death. Two weeks yeah. before to her death. Just weeks later, her funeral was attended by several hundred friends, fans, families, and believers. And one of the things that you know, we kind of talked about was trying to prove credibility and, and discredibility. This doctor that I had mentioned, Dr. Hammonds, he started to come back with not being so polite at all. Um, and just called her out as an absolute fraud in her latter years to the point of publishing big, uh, I won't say front page, but big articles in the, in the New York uh, newspapers with challenges uh, against her. Uh, one particular incident was he would challenge her uh, and enclose a certified check for a large sum of money, uh, put it into a sealed envelope, and place it in Molly's bedroom where she would be uh, allowed to touch the envelope. She would not be permitted, obviously, to open it or examine it in any way. And if she could accurately describe the check, the amount, the date, the signature, the bank in which it was drawn from, 
Dr. Hammond said he would then donate that full amount of that check to a charity of her choice or otherwise dispose of it in accordance to her wishes. But if this was in her later years, I mean, hadn't she already said she was losing these she gifts? She was already starting to lose these gifts, yes. Now she's like, I don't need to prove myself. I'm not doing it. Okay. So he issues yet another challenge. Uh, again, in the newspaper, takes out money to, to, to try to ridicule this woman publicly. I mean, I get what he's doing, but it seems like he's kind of a jerk. Yeah, he is. I mean, definitely, I think he is. Uh, and this one... Um, he, he says, okay, you've went all this time without food. Let's prove it. She had less enthusiasm to even accept this one, of course, but said under controlled conditions, basically under observation, uh, Dr. Hammonds proposed another test to monitor for 30 days under the watchful eyes of monitors from the Neurology Society and promised her $1,000 in return that she could do with whatever she wanted. She could donate it to charity or whatever just to prove that she truly wasn't eating or was sparsely, <laughs> you know, eating. Then he goes on to say later on that he never even personally met her. So this guy is, is kind of <laughs> like an internet bully in today's society, the way I look yeah, at it. Yeah, he's kind of being a jerk. And then it's like, and, I'm not even going to go talk to you in person. I'm going to throw down these challenges to well, you. And again, he's coming after her after she claims that these things had stopped. So, yeah, or at least know, started slowing down. She had, at that yeah, time. she was yep. losing these gifts. And then he's like, well, now that you're losing them, why don't you prove it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, come on, I'll call you out. I'm not going to come to your house. I'm not going to see you in person, but I'm going to call you out. Uh, and again, she had nothing that she's like, I don't need to prove anything. Uh, to your point, she had already started, uh, her eyesight came back. She had started to say she was losing her well, powers. And again, I mean, if you look at this story from the outside, you can either A, admire that she stood by her ground and said, hey, I don't have to prove myself to you. Or you could look at it as B, I've been lying all these yeah, years and I don't want to prove it. <laughs> I'm tired of playing this game. Just leave me alone. Um, one last little tidbit. There was a book that was published kind of after the hoopla. It was in 1894 and um, it was her, her case had almost kind of started to be forgotten about. It was old news. Uh, but an Abram H. Daly wrote an entitled book called Molly Fancher, the Brooklyn Enigma. And that's where she got her title from. An authentic statement of facts in the life of Mary J. or Molly J. Fancier. The book is made up of diary entries by her aunt, who again, like I said, was kind of the surrogate mother that was by her bedside. And apparently they found where she had kept a diary, almost a daily event of what food or whatever she had intaked, what she had drank, what had happened, what doctors had saw her, how many visitors came, what visitors, what she did that day, what visions she had. And um, signed a t a statements by friends, reprints of various newspaper articles. But since Daly's book kind of, it was kind of a flop because it didn't really present any anything new. It was just kind of trying to rekindle the story of the past. But I thought that was it was a very interesting the Brooklyn Enigma. Well, see, I got I got to be honest. When you had first mentioned this one to me, it wasn't one that it grabbed me. I mean, it's a. Uh... I, I think I've already said I'm a I'm a monsters and a creatures and a, <laughs> you know ghost kind of guy, but the, when I started reading about it, it was the other girls that caught my attention almost more than Molly, which Molly's story is much more interesting, obviously, and 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 I guess harder to disprove, especially those other girls were more known hoaxes, but I found it interesting to say that there was you know she wasn't the only one of these so-called fasting girls, 
Uh, and apparently, like I said, it has a rich history going all the way back to the 1800s or even before that. Right. You yeah. talk about you know, their saints, that that was one of their documented miracles was fasting, you know, surviving without food. And a few of them do have to seem to have religious connotations. The, the one girl that would only subsist on the communion. communion. Yep. But I found the other girls to be as, as interesting to me just because... You know, you would think they well. Obviously, they're going to follow in Molly's footsteps. They're going to cash in on her celebrity, but they came before her. You know, they True. a lot of these women were pre Molly and and tried to make. You know, I don't want to say career, but tried to make a name for themselves as fasting girls. Only to either a end up you know in tragedy, end up dead. Mm-hmm. You know, starving themselves to death or being starved to death. And, and to fuel to that statement, I mean, you got to consider this is the Victorian era. Some of that, the events that you're talking about was overseas. Now, obviously, news didn't travel near yeah, as fast, yeah. but that's obviously, today, it's the internet, and what happens there, yeah. you'll find out in yeah, moments. The, the internet. <laughs> um, but, I mean, if it wasn't for being subscribed to a newspaper or having family or something, there, you might not know about yeah. something for a year or, at the very least, months. Yeah, but but you have some of these that end in tragedy and some that end up just flat out being hoaxes. Absolute hoaxes. I mean, even the ones that end in tragedy, they're still hoaxes, but it's unfortunate you know, the, you know, Tragic girl, the person dies. But then some of them were, you know, obvious you, these these women were caught. And again, just, just to read it one more time, <laughs> who took the cold potato? Dr. Mary Walker says, fasting girl bit a donut. <laughs> Best newspaper article title I've ever found. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> so the Brooklyn Enigma. That's just another tale that you can find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I would like to thank uh, Alex Tudor, who has been helping us uh, a lot uh, with our endeavors on this podcast. You can call him our producer at this point, I think. Our producer, electronic recording technician. Uh, um, he's uh, the one that's setting up all the mics and the hardware in the background. And then Bill Weirs is going through taking his time to try to clean and edit this up and uh, give us the best possible version that we can present to you folks. want to thank everybody involved with that. Also, would like to say, if you're interested in uh, taking a listen to our local band, Phantom Sam, who has provided our uh, Nightmares on the Lost Highway theme song, if you will, uh, we will be sharing a link on our Facebook page. Uh, if you would love to go check out their unique sound, they've got some wonderful stuff going on. So we appreciate our support for us, um, and also we would appreciate support for them as well. Thank you very much.